giant robot smashing into other giant robots. This is the Giant Robots Smashing into Other Giant Robots podcast, where we explore the design, development, and business of great products. I'm your host, Chad Pytel, and with us today is Chris Coyer, co-founder of CodePen, creator of CSS Tricks, and co-host of Shop Talk Show. Chris, thanks for joining me. Hey, that's right. It's uh, it's my pleasure to be on. It's kind of a crossover podcast because this is a long-running podcast. You're up over 300, which I feel like is a, is a special milestone. We are too over at Chop Talk Show. Yeah, you are just beating us out because you started in January of 2012 and we started in June of 2012. Yeah, so, big year, I guess, that 2012. <laughs> yeah. yeah, podcasts, uh, the new fad that started in 2012 <laughs> or before. So while we're on the topic of podcasts, let's talk about the Shop Talk Show. So you've been doing it for a long, long time. How do you approach the show nowadays, maybe differently than than you did when you first got started? Uh, yeah, I don't know it's tr- if it's tremendously different. I mean, there's been experiments along the way that some of which have been shelved. You know, in the mm-hmm. early days, we, we dreamed of having it be like a live call-in show. I don't know if you used to yeah. watch like, remember there used to be like a channel on TV, tech TV, mm-hmm. and yeah. you used to be able to call in like Leo Laporte had this show that you could just you could just call in with your questions. And I'm sure it was highly... You know, they had people screening calls and people would, would would have it. And he's, you know, he's such a good host. And Kevin Rose was on the show, too. They would just answer anybody's question about their computers, email mm-hmm. questions and all that. It was so fun to watch, you know, even if the questions weren't applicable to you. And then when we started Chop Talk Show, it wasn't exactly modeled after that, but a little closer to Car Talk mm-hmm. on NPR. Just like, let's have people write in questions. I mean, our dream was to have them call in and we'd talk to them live, but th- right. it turns out that tech for that is is more complicated than we were willing to do. We, we explored it, but it was like, mm, you know, that's yeah. a lot. So instead we had people, you know, because it isn't particularly hard to record an MP3, just, you know, record an MP3 of yourself asking the question, we'll play it. And then we'll do the show. But we we then aired the show live, which was its own technological hurdles to do. And then mm-hmm. we put a chat room up so that, you know, we'd be doing the show live and people were chatting along with us as we were doing it. It was fun. It wasn't a disaster, but it seemed like every there was always some kind of problem. And eventually <laughs> we're just like, you know what? What's important to us is that we keep the show going. It was, you know, maybe one percent of people listen live or right. less. And so it's like, why optimize for the one percent kind of thing? Like, let's just make a good show and we'll put it out. Yeah. So for those who haven't listened to the show before, and I was perhaps incorrectly assuming that people would know, uh, how do you describe Shop Talk Show? Well, that's like car talk for websites. You know, it's, it's yeah. <laughs> Dave and I. The meat of it is people asking questions, you know, write in a question and we'll read it out loud and answer it. Mm-hmm. But it's changed over time. You know, what we wanted to avoid, <laughs> not to, I hope this doesn't hit too hard, but we kind of wanted to avoid the the interview thing. Right. Because there's so many. And there, there's a reason that's the default format. It's compelling. It's interesting to hear people's stories. But we just thought maybe let's try to do something a little bit different, even when we have a guest. Let's pepper them with questions too, um, like tech questions. So they, they, you know, that'll be the answer. And I don't know that we've stuck to that perfectly. Sometimes it does just turn into an interview or yeah. let's talk about your product or something. But we try to do Q&A. Yeah. And, you know, listeners to this show will know that we've gone through a lot of different formats as our interests and the things we're focused on change over time. You know, we went through a period of time where it was two people talking about what they were working on instead of interviews. 
And now Lindsay and I are are co-hosting some episodes and doing some episodes separately. And I think, mm-hmm. you know, when you do something for this long, ThoughtBot's been going on for 16 years now, and our podcasts have been going on for nine, you have to find ways of doing things and keeping things interesting. Otherwise, no matter how exciting something is, when it first happens, I find it's inevitably going to get stale. You know, I feel like you're especially interesting because there's six locations of ThoughtBot mm-hmm. and oodles of employees that I don't have. And you're the CEO of all that and, and make time for this. So you must see some pretty extreme value in this. I like it. And that matters a lot in my world. <laughs> I believe life is too short to be unfulfilled in your work and to be doing things that don't make you excited and happy. And so when I want to do something, I am very intentional about making sure that that I set aside time for it and that it happens. That's nice. You just want to. Right. I like that, you know? Yeah. And I work hard the rest of the time so that I can be sure to be successful enough to have time yeah. to do the things that, you know, might not otherwise get done. Sure. So speaking of which, you have some things that you've been doing for a long time, about as long as Shop Talk Show or maybe longer you've been doing CodePen? I forget the exact, lo- the, the longest thing I've been doing that people would know about is is CSS tricks. You know, it's just like mm-hmm. a blog about making websites, essentially. But shortly after the launch of that, you know, a few years later, both CodePen and Shop Talk Show kind of started out. I, I almost forget which one's first now, but they're both pretty old, you know, six, seven years old. So CodePen is how you spend most of your time. It's if you have a job, that's what your job is, right? Yeah, it is because it's bigger and there's like full-time employees at it. Mm-hmm. Whereas Shop Talk Show is just me and my buddy Dave just screwing around. You know, yeah. it's not a it's not a serious business enterprise. I do it because I want to, let's say. And uh, and CSS Tricks has some employees, but they're part-time and it's just a blog. Like the stakes aren't particularly high on CSS Tricks, you know? Yeah. It's, you know, but CodePen is a legit product with full-time employees and a future and it's much bigger than the other two. So yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, CodePen is my main. If I have a job, it's definitely CodePen. How did CodePen start? My two co-founders are Tim Sabat and Alex Vasquez and we work together at Wufu. And we got bought at Wufu. I wasn't a founder of it. Neither were they. We were just employees. But we were bought by a great company, SurveyMonkey, out in California. And we all moved out there. So we were friends at Wufu working together. Then we worked together at SurveyMonkey. So we continued to be friends there. And then when our time was up at SurveyMonkey, we just wanted something new for ourselves. We already knew that we worked together well and that our skill sets complemented each other. So we ended up kind of taking the plunge together in a new app which was a cool leap of faith. But the, the concept of it kind of came from CSS Tricks, which came from like, this is a really cool way to show off front-end technology. And pretty much every post I write on CSS Tricks can benefit from a front-end demo of some kind. Mm-hmm. And there's a few other apps that kind of are in the same vein as CodePen, even back then, especially now, though. But I wanted to, I wanted to run one because I thought I could do a good job with it. And so it's kind of a place to build demos, perhaps, at its heart. So you were working together and you decided to do something. Was it obvious that CodePen was that thing or did you decide to work together and then find what you were going to work together on? No, I think the thing came first. I'm sure there was Mm -hmm. a seed of like, it's fun to work with these fellas. Maybe we should explore different ideas. And there was some of that. 
I think at one point we're like, maybe we should make like a WordPress theme shop or something. I hear there's money in that. So I think Mm -hmm. all of us had like a little bit of entrepreneurial spirit. But then I'm like, but none of us really like I care about WordPress just because I've been working with the web. But I don't think these guys really do. I think they would do it because it's a new, interesting technological challenge for them. But they wouldn't be doing it because their heart was in it necessarily. But then this this codeman thing came as like a, why don't you guys help me over the weekend build this thing? Because how how hard can it be, right? I need a database, you know, that saves these little demos in it. You know, one column for HTML, one column for CSS, one column for JavaScript, smash them all together in an iframe. We should be able to knock this out over the weekend kind of thing. And we kind of did, mm-hmm. you know, like there's a really simple, dumb, basic version of it. But it became pretty apparent that like, oh, this is kind of fun. And we could put a little alpha out on the internet and people are definitely interested in this. There's plenty of early buzz about it. So we're like, maybe let's do that. Like the time between a little weekend project and let's go for this in a bigger way was pretty short. And what did going for this in a bigger way mean to you? Did it mean raising millions of dollars in funding? Not right away. And in fact, it was many years later until we took any money at all. And we've only done that once. And it was Mm -hmm. just from some friends. So VC has not been a big part of our story, really. It was, let's get to a pro plan as quickly as we can. Like, let's find a way to charge money for this sooner than later. So there's maybe a year of CodePen existing where it didn't have any kind of pro feature, any way to take money from customers because we were actively working right away on like, let's find something we can charge people for, Mm -hmm. you know. (laughs) How did you all support yourselves during that time? You know, a lot of it, we were at SurveyMonkey still. Okay. We just stayed there. Mm -hmm. And we would meet on like Thursdays at noon or something, and we'd meet in some bar and talk about what we were going to work on. And it didn't bleed into work. We'd just work on it on nights and weekends and stuff. But they stayed a little longer than I did. It's not that I disliked the job, really. I just was like my little cliff was much shorter than theirs was for whatever reason, for business reasons. And there was no remote work there. And I'm pretty attached to the idea of remote work. So as soon as my kind of time came at SurveyMonkey, I pieced out. Mm -hmm. And and I had some other stuff, too, like CSS Tricks already existed. And there was already money coming in from that in advertising. So my kind of safety net was a little more established than theirs was. So they stayed an additional year while we were working on CodePen. And at one point, you know, so if if anybody took a risk, it was those two guys. Mm -hmm. And they would just went for it. God bless them. (laughs) So there are obviously lots of different ways to build companies, to fund companies, to bootstrap them or to start them. Mm -hmm. That's the particular path you took for CodePen. What do you think someone should be asking themselves if they're at a similar transition point in terms of deciding what's right for them or what's right for their business. You mean like, should we, I don't know, put a pitch deck together and start right. trying to get some right. money for this thing yeah. or not? Gosh, that's tough. You know, I, th- I feel like I almost didn't do it out of ignorance in a way mm-hmm. or like because I just didn't think we could compel anybody or I just didn't know who to e- where to even start. As far as I know, there's no manual that's like, okay, you want to do this? Go talk to X, Y, and Z people, and then you're off to the races. Like, I just didn't know, which made me kind of not care. I was like, I don't even know what we'd do with $10 million anyway. Like, do I want to hire 30 people? Like, that sounds intimidating and scary to me, so no. But I think that would be different to me now, because I've grown up and changed a little bit. And once in a while now, I'm like, I know what I'd do with $15 million. That would be awesome, you know? (laughs) 
So what does CodePen look like today then uh, in terms of team and scale? Yeah, well, there's three founders and four employees. So we're still pretty little and we're not bootstrapped because at one point, you know, halfway through or this journey so far, we have some some friends and those friends were part of that WooFoo SurveyMonkey journey also, mm-hmm. but we're the founders or two of three founders and gave us ultimately a million dollars to like take a bigger stab at CodePen. Mm-hmm. And then we used that to hire our first round of employees. Uh, and we, you know, built some things that we don't think we could have built without those extra hands. And we think that worked out okay, but haven't significantly grown since then. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of been like a a long, slow ride kind of thing. And I think we're doing pretty okay. You know, mm-hmm. we're not like a more typical startup story where we fail. We're seven years in and we're profitable but not so hugely so that we're 50 employees or have seven locations or anything mm-hmm. like that. So it, it's funny. And I, to be honest, I still want that, but I got to find it. Right. I got to figure out a way to get there. I appreciate the honesty because I think it would be easy to say, oh, you know, I only want to work with a small team of people doing something small. And that's, that's what oh, I yeah, want. I'm do. already perfect. Yeah. Everything I've done is perfect. What I'm doing is perfect. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> no. But I think it's refreshingly honest to say if it could be bigger or if I found something that could be bigger, then that's exciting to me and that would be okay with me. Yeah, it is because it's not just bigger for bigger sake, although a little bit, you know, I wouldn't mind maybe some of the stability that comes with that. Mm -hmm. I feel like there's a difference between seven employees and 70, you know, like if there's a Mm -hmm. little downturn, like people, this is a sucky thing to say, but if you have to de-staff a little bit to stabilize the money that's coming in, that's like a step you can do without closing your company. Mm-hmm. Whereas when you're really small, a serious downturn is like, we don't have that option. It's kind of, it feels a little more do or die, which I don't love. Right. You know? We did a similar sort of honest thing. And I've mentioned it here before on the show, just if you actually look at the trajectory of ThoughtBot, we, we love to build products and consulting allows us to build products, but have stability. So when one of those products fails, as products inevitably do, it's not our team. And, uh, you know, uh, so we get an outlet for creating products, but we've also created our own products along the way. And the reality was when we were six or eight or 10 people, if one of those products that we had created had been super successful, we totally would have stopped doing consulting and followed that product. But that didn't happen. (laughs) And instead, the big thing that we were really good at and that there was big demand for and that we were having an impact on the world that was bigger and wanted more of us was the consulting side of things and that what we could bring to bear for other people's products. And I'm okay with that. I'm comfortable with that. Because it's about, for us, it's about having the impact on the world, sharing what we know with as many people as possible. That's great. Yeah, I've, I've found that over the years that sometimes product companies like us might be like, well, we're going to still, we're, you know, I almost envy the the client work thing because that seems to never dry up and that's always a possibility. It's like, they're almost like they're envious of client work kind of stuff. And and definitely people that do client work are always envious of the product right. side. The grass is like, always wow. greener on the other side. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Even same thing with, you know, seven versus 70 and the stability that it goes. You're you're absolutely right about like if you need to cut costs, you have room to do that. But there's also Mm -hmm. huge trade-offs to being bigger and having a bigger team. 
I'm sure. You know, and it, part of it for us isn't just the stability. It's like we have unrealized ideas. Yeah. That's even bigger to me. Like I want to get to these ideas and I at some point you just need more hands to do it. And it's not that we're never going to get there at, at our size, but it certainly would be easier if we had more hands. But I'm just not willing to, I don't know if I'm not willing to, but the path to get there is less clear, you know? Yeah. I don't want to risk going into a loss situation for a long time just to grab some hands. I'd rather just do it slowly ourselves. Mm -hmm. So as you've put yourself in a position to be in charge of what you're working on, you're you're a founder, you have co-founders, but to a certain extent, I get the impression that you're you're in control of your destiny and what you work on and what you do. Is that accurate? Oh, yeah, I would say that's yeah. that's accurate, even on a day-to-day basis. You know, I, th- I have some people that have some expectations of me, but mm-hmm. but largely I choose what I do. So what are the things that as you've been in that position of, of control that you've said, you know, I believe in this. I want our company to work this way. I, I like the idea of, of thinking about how you work and changing how you work. And we, and we do that, you know, have little initiatives that's like, you know what, we had great success pairing. So let's make that a little bit more, I don't know, emphatic mm-hmm. here. And that we'll have almost like scheduled pairing times. And that if you're working on something and you know somebody else's to like, just do it, just get together and use both your brains together because the, the output is almost always better that way. That's a true story. That's not, you know, we, we, do, we do stuff like that. But I'm not sure. Do you have any examples from yourself that I could think about? Well, you had earlier said you were at SurveyMonkey and you believed in remote or wanted that. So is that something that mm-hmm. you carried forward to CodePen? It is. I mean, we're all, we're 100% remote and it ebbs and flows. At, at one point, I, I live in Bend, Oregon now, and mm-hmm. I moved here because my co-founder, Tim, lived here too. It wasn't the only reason, but... I don't know. I like the guy and I visited him before and liked this little town and my family was uh, looking for something new. So we moved here and that put two of us in the same office, but it still felt kind of remotey because everybody else is remote. It's not like Tim and I were having these strategy meetings without anybody else. We like never did that. Mm-hmm. So it was, it still felt fairly remote and not multiple people live in the same city and stuff, but the culture is a hundred percent remote. All conversations happen in Slack and things are documented in Notion. And it just has this kind of like people can work from anywhere and it's mm-hmm. not a big deal. I, uh, Rachel Smith works for us and she's just this outstanding developer, I think. And because she's in Australia, her overlap time is very little. Mm-hmm. And it largely works. I mean, everybody was concerned about it when she returned to Australia after working here in the States with us for a while, because we're like, is this really going to work? We're so little, you know, like, do we possibly have the like procedures in place to make sure that she doesn't feel alone and we don't feel like we understand what she's doing or all Mm -hmm. those kind of typical problems with remote work. And it worn out that way. It's been great. I mean, some days I wish she was here so we could talk more, but but largely it's like, well, you're kicking butt and I know exactly what you're doing and that works good. Some days I wish we were in one place more often. Mm-hmm. I know a lot of companies have on-sites and stuff. Do y'all do that? Have a big get-together? We do. We didn't have one this year, but we've had one for many years and w- the goal is to have one next year. Okay, but, cool. I'm sure it's for all the same reasons, right? Just to look I, at each other in the face. and So... It's okay if the answer is no, by the way, but w- would you say like, we are a remote company, that that is the way that we intentionally work and that, you know, all things being equal, we yeah, will stay that way and we believe in that. And 
those kinds of things. It doesn't mean that I'm not envious sometimes or mm-hmm. think that there could be some value in a company that's not that way because mm-hmm. I do have that a feeling once in a while. But no, that chip has sailed and largely I think the remote thing is the right choice for us and will probably always be that way. Yeah. So that's one example of something that, you know, you may have either been intentional about or sort of happened along the way. And, and now you say, yeah, that that defines CodePen. Yeah, I, you know, I'm, it's other things in that vein, though, I mostly like have anxiety about. <laughs> <laughs> mostly I'm like, I don't have a like a management style that I roll with mm-hmm. and, you know, write blog posts about or anything. Mostly I think I'm a terrible manager and really need to up my game there and the way that we operate in that way is is loosey goosey at best, and perhaps a problem for us. Mm-hmm. You know, so I mean, <laughs> if you're looking for <laughs> that level of honesty, but I kinda, no, it's great. A lot of times, I, I just like employees that uh, I'm not blaming any particular style of employee, but I think some need more management yeah. than others, if that's fair, and that's okay. Like, if you need a bunch of management to be effective, that's just the style of employee you are, and that's fine. But I can't provide that. Like, I'm kind of bad at that aspect. So I work better with an employee that just kind of takes the reins and rolls with it. Not only is that refreshingly honest, but also it it resonates a lot with me because it's exactly the same for me. (laughs) In fact, you know, at ThoughtBot, we do have a, I wonder if you have this at CodePen, but like a written set of values that we've refined over the years. And one of them is self-management. And it occurred to me a few years ago that the reason why that was a value is because I'm not necessarily a good manager and that we work best and have always worked best when people are self-managing. And it works really well in product design and development to have people who self-manage and and don't need to be told what to do all the time. So that really helps Mm -hmm. that it's very closely aligned with the success of our business. But I do think the origin of it is in my ability as a manager. Hmm, interesting. What about then you hired somebody and you were wrong? It turns out they're not very good self-manager. And the fallout from that is that they're just not doing that good of a job in this environment. Like, have you had to go there? That means, I mean, yeah, you might have to, you might have to boot somebody. Yeah. And I think that's difficult. Uh, you know, it's always difficult to part ways with somebody. I do think that having articulated the values in that way, in a very pretty explicit way, and having them written down is helpful in that regard. One, because not only when it ultimately does come down to, you know, this isn't working and you can more clearly define why, but for expectation setting, like good values are what people get hired and fired over, but they also define how you actually work. So like recognizing that we have that way of working, it's really helpful to then be able to tell new people like, you may feel this, you may be looking for permission, or you may be expecting someone to tell you what to do, and you're not going to get it. And it's going to feel uncomfortable to you. We're not the kind of company that is going to lay out a very explicit do this, then do that. And you will get this title promotion. And then the next step for you is this. We're not that kind of company. That's not how management at ThoughtBot works. Management at ThoughtBot is a support structure for helping identify and accomplish the things that you want to accomplish. We're going to be here to support you, but we're not going to tell you what to do. That's great. What I hear is that you're not only spell out what it's like here, but what you might experience if you don't 
fit in with what's like here too. You know, like it's almost important to explain both sides. Yeah. And I don't believe that people can't grow and and change, you know, particularly in this one. I I think it is possible for people to say, oh yeah, okay, I see what's happening. Because so many companies are built around telling people what to do. So I don't fault people when, despite all their best intentions, they join and, you know, they're waiting for someone to tell them what to do next, Mm -hmm. because that's how a lot of companies work. So it's helpful to identify it so that we can correct that. What about the balance of expectations too? It's like, just because I'm not telling you what to do every step of the way, it doesn't mean do whatever you want. I also have this like kind of expectation that you're pushing forward the thing that we all agreed is needs to be pushed forward. Mm -hmm. So that's tricky too, because it it doesn't, it's not just a total absence of planning and management. It's like a, what's a way to, I don't know, explain to the team what we're working on and why, and then go for it. And for us lately, it's been kind of like a, you know, once a week meetings and little ad hoc ones when we need to, but having each particular project has its own document that everybody has editing access to that involves like a Kanban in there of like tickets of things that need to be done that you can self-assign or assign to people or whatever. So you see little tickets moving around that all kind of push the project forward. But it also has like a structure Mm -hmm. of like, this is what a project is. This is why we're doing this project. This is the design phase and that involves a discussion and sign off. And this is a development phase and that just involves discussion and sign off. And it's not waterfall, but it's like a don't go too far on this thing before we've all talked about it and agreed. That's a great transition because I wanted to talk about how you do design and development at CodePen. So that's how ideas flow. Where do ideas sort of come from now? You know, having worked on this product for so long. The, I mean, seven years in, it, yeah, is, exactly. it is different now for sure. Some of it comes from just business only. You know, like we want to build something that people are willing to pay for. Because mm-hmm. if we're not worried about that at this point, then like it's just feels stupid. You know, like <laughs> that's the that's how we get to stay around and do this. It's not like a toy anymore. It's like, a, yeah. you know, we have to make decisions that are all business focused. So right at the top of a project planning document is let's validate this idea that we're going to work on in two ways. One of them, it needs to pass some business muster. And then it needs also to pass some like user experience muster, like that it's provable that this thing is good both for business and the users. Ideally, it's both. And sometimes one of them is so much stronger than the other one that it overtakes it. So some examples are like we have this like a great advertising opportunity and we need to do some work to make it happen. That's going to crush on the business side. It's going to obviously pass muster there. Mm -hmm. And it's not going to do particularly well on user justification because no user is going to tell you they want more ads on your site. So it's like one of them has to like overtake the other one in a way. And sometimes that just happens. But at least we talked about it, Mm -hmm. you know, at least it, it didn't just start happening and nobody was aware of the implications on both sides. You know, and another example is we track actually like with data and spreadsheets and stuff, user requests for things when they write in and say like, oh, I'm surprised I couldn't do this or I wish it could do this or something. That's all treated very seriously and gets logged in spreadsheets of how many times people have asked for that thing. And we had one um, that was number one on that list for a long time, which was, which was basically, weirdly enough, like a trash can because you build stuff on CodePen. And in the past, when you delete it, you're asked to confirm what you're doing, but it's just gone forever. And that's different than most apps deal with deleting of things these Mm -hmm. days, which is just like, 
well, I don't know, like the old Mac OS or Windows or anything. You drag it to the trash can and it temporarily lives there until you more emphatically empty it. That was a really strongly requested thing. And it mostly came in the form of, oops, I deleted this thing, but I didn't mean Mm -hmm. to. And it was like, well, we asked you to confirm like three (laughs) times. But whatever, you know, we were wrong. You're right, you know. So we decided to build a trash can. Now, we can't make the trash can a a pro feature. So what's funny is, well, (laughs) we could have. I should say couldn't. It could have been pro, but (laughs) it didn't really strongly pass the business Mm -hmm. side. It only did in the case of like, well, we're pissing off our customers less. So it's kind of good for business in that way. Like maybe it's a churn buster. I don't know. But it was much more easily, it was the number one request. So of course we got to build it or it felt like we ought to. So sometimes one is stronger than the other. Ideally, we're building something that's good for both. So we agree to that. And then we like to do design driven first. Like if we all agree, this is a good idea. Let's talk about what it looks like first in a way like what's the ux of using that thing and maybe there's some literal design that happens like in a tool like figma or something and then let's talk about that so everybody's like aware of where we're going Mm -hmm. this doesn't this isn't abstract anymore it's not just like some concept of what we're going to do and then everybody kind of like signs off on it yes like that's the thing that we're building you understand yes yes (laughs) yeah and then it goes into development but development has, you know, is probably the largest phase as it often is. You know, what does it touch? Is the database involved? What are the security concerns? Like, how do we implement it? What technologies are we using? Are errors going to be logged? You know, there's all these checklist things that have to happen. Then it goes through and then it's like, did you write tests for it? And yada, yada, yada. Does it need a feature flag? And there's just all this stuff. And then it, and then it goes out, hopefully, you know. It feels grown up because it didn't used to be that way. It used to just be like, hot and fast yeah we're coding stuff ship it yeah and it became a problem is why it's more codified now you know so what was the problem in that the problem is bugs it's frustration that you're not building new cool things that people want and that you have anxiety that you're not pushing your company forward because all of your time is spent fixing legacy problems that, you, you know, you spend one day on this new feature and you're pulled away immediately because of a red hot fire on something else. And it was like when you're losing productive time to bugs and stuff, it was kind of like we need to slow down and be more emphatic about what we're building and testing it as we go and putting things into place to, to make it less of a problem. And, you know, that was maybe two years ago when that was at its worst. And since we've been a little slower and more emphatic and had more testing and chose technologies that are more stable and, you know, I'd say the biggest change we made that had the most impact is just a lot more talking to each other about exactly what we're doing and all this pairing stuff I alluded to Mm -hmm. has just greatly reduced the amount of like, oh, it's Monday and there's something absolutely on fire and it's going to take us a week or two to even calm that fire down before we can even dream about getting back on new development. A lot better now. Good. Good. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And what do you spend your time doing as it changed? (laughs) That's a great question. You know, I used to be our designer Mm -hmm. largely because I do HTML, CSS, and, and JavaScript. But, you know, you know, I have some design skill. It's not my absolute top thing, but I fancy myself that way. You know, maybe when I grow up, I'll get to be a designer. But at some point I was like, you know, I'm not really that good at this thing. And there's a lot of value in design. 
maybe obviously to the world that <laughs> maybe if we hire somebody who's totally focused on it, unlike me, who's being pulled in 50 directions. So even if I am a great designer, I'm pulled so many ways that I'm not entirely focused on it. We hired Claire Frank, who's our just lead designer. So it's 100% her responsibility, this design stuff. So, okay, you know, th- that changed my role at that time. But that's just one example of ways that my role has has changed over time. I kind of think of myself as like, I have my finger in almost everything Mm -hmm. that we're doing in a way that maybe nobody else does. Mm -hmm. So that I can kind of like, you know, when we have our all hands stand up, it's kind of my voice leading it. Not always, but I think of myself in that way. Like, I'm going to set the stage for the company every week. This is what's going on. This is what these people are working on. These are blockers that they might have. Let me put these two people together because I think they can solve something together. It's kind of a facilitator in a way. Mm -hmm. I don't know that I'm particularly good at it, as I said, but that's kind of where I go. And plus I'm podcasting and thinking about our blog and trying to kind of have a holistic view of this. One thing I didn't say is that we also have, at one point, we, we kind of had stopped and said, what exactly are we doing here? Mm-hmm. We're seven years into this thing. Are we just flying by night or do we have like a vision for where this is going? And I credit my co-founder, Alex, for really like kind of codifying that in an interesting way that he sold me on very strongly. And, you know, we think of that as our, we kind of have this two pillared vision and I can't really go into it because I don't know if it's that interesting outside of CodePen anyway, but it also makes sure when we pick these things that pass business muster mm-hmm. and passed like a UX muster, they also need to be aligned with these two where we're headed as a company things. And that almost happens ahead of time. Like if it's not part of those two things, then just let's not even do it mm-hmm. at all. Otherwise, it feels like you're just doing nothing. You're just floating. It, it feels much more grounding to have like a place where you're headed. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So who handles the business side of things? You know, Not me. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I'd say I, Tim, Tim and Alex, my co-founders are much more, yeah. they're just better at that. And, you know, like if, if, if they said it sometime, I'm sick of this and I need help and it needs to be more of your responsibility. I think I would step up to the plate, but I don't do any of yeah. it now. Now, having worked together before CodePen, did you have an explicit conversation about what you'd each be doing when you started? No, mm-hmm. it felt more natural than that. Although I think our start, we knew our personalities mm-hmm. well enough that that kind of fell into place. But it was more like Tim is a DevOps guy. He's a database guy. He's a backend guy pretty through and through. And, you know, scaling and those kind of interesting problems are totally in his wheelhouse. And Alex was like, just he's really good at JavaScript specifically. But he also floats between front end and back end stuff mm-hmm. pretty nicely. And he's just a damn good programmer. You know, and he's got a, a real title these days. I code my CTO, you mm-hmm. know. He does CTO things. I don't know anything about backend. You know, I touch it now because I have to once in a while, but but not much. I am the front end guy. So our it, this, it felt like a miracle. Like, wow, we actually don't have a lot of overlapping skills. The three of us really have a strong separation of skills that allows us to build products. And that's cool. And now, now you're right. Somebody's got to do the books. So raise your hand, you know, <laughs> who wants to do it? So it was a volunteer thing yeah i mean and we outsourced it a couple of different times now it's almost totally outsourced there's nobody wants to we're not we don't have one of those like the business guy founders right which i think is kind of cool i almost jealous of that once in a while somebody that's just hustles on business stuff and we've self-reflected on that sometimes like maybe that's a problem you know 
maybe we should have like a CEO type figurehead that just thinks about our position in the market and is on the phone with people doing partnerships and that kind of crap. Because we never do that. Right. All we do is think about features and stuff. I think it's really easy, just in the say we were earlier saying, like the grass is always greener on the other side, is, is to identify these things that you do or that you don't do that other places do or other you see other companies doing and, and saying, what would it look like if we did that? For us, that thing has always been sales. We traditionally have not had people who are not designers and developers talking to customers because we were afraid of what introducing more traditional salespeople would be like. But when you do that, Mm -hmm. you continually have that specter of what would it look like if we had that? If we have a slow month or a slow quarter or, or a slow year, it's like, oh, would that have happened if we weren't doing sales in the way that we're doing it? That's always been sort of the the white whale that's out there for us in terms of how our company might be different. Yep. So have you dipped your toes at all? We have, and it's gone really well. Nice. And I think that part of why it's gone well is because we spent so long trying to figure out what that would be in a way that was authentic to us. And then combined with, it's not purely a sales thing. I was like, Each studio has a managing director and they're not only responsible for sales, they're responsible for the whole P&L of that studio and the business of that studio. And I think that that's part of why it's been successful. I mean, I look at you and I'm like, what, you get a customer in the door that wants you to build a big product that's worth, what, hundreds of thousands of dollars? Mm -hmm. That's awesome. You know, like, of course you should have salespeople out there that, that... you have something to sell that's big. And then especially if you can give them some other role too. I look at us and be like, I can't have somebody on the phone trying to sell $9 plans. The numbers don't work for that. We don't have a product yet. That's where a lot of companies, they are taking a lot of funding and it is to build teams of salespeople selling $9 or $30 things. And that's very, very difficult. You have to show that you can be so much bigger than you are now in order to make that work financially. I mean, it seems like that's a more of a marketing job than a sales job at them because you got well, sales scale. and marketing. You... So you're, you, you have a team yeah. of sales <laughs> and marketing people. <laughs> right. Sure. It, it also makes you be like, well, what would a product look like where we could charge, I don't know, a thousand dollars a month. If we had a product like that, then we could have a sales team because that's worth bucks. You know, that, uh, if you have a product that you got to get on the phone and sell a university or enterprise or something, you know, that seems to be a, a popular choice. Right? I think it would. I think it would be enterprise, enterprise sales, selling to large companies and doing site license. You know, we're going to send yeah. it to all 10,000 of your developers are going to get access to CodePen and then on site, allowing people to self-host it and doing it on-prem. Do you get requests for that kind of stuff? Yeah, like not overwhelmingly mm-hmm. so, but once in a while. And is it the kind of thing that you've pursued or have you said, you know, this this is going to work? Not at all yet, which I feel like is a little revealy for this podcast, but sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Not to you, but to my co-founders, yeah. I guess. It's like we think of CodePen's strength in some other ways and yeah. that like some of the value we find at CodePen that I just, I like and I want and I work on it because I want to kind of stuff is the social mm-hmm. aspect to yeah. it and how strong our community it is and the network effects of that, which are also kind of a big deal. You know, we're seven people. We don't get to work on an enterprise product and, you know, social for the world. Right. They're like opposed right. in some way. And I don't want to work on them both at the same time. Maybe we can pivot at some point and choose to work on a different way. But 
I like our community more than I want to, you know, build a tool for IBM internally. Yeah. Well, Chris, thank you for coming on and, and, and chatting with me and, and sharing your story and everything that you've accomplished, you know, and the contributions that you've made to the internet community are awesome. I know ThoughtBot and I'm sure many of our listeners have benefited from your work. So thank you. Cheers. Likewise. If people want to follow along with you or get in touch with you, where's the best place for them to do that? Twitter, Chris Coyer. I just use my name on all yeah. this social stuff, so I'm findable there. But I also have chriscoyer.net, which is just my personal homepage that I try to keep. Uh, you know, I blog there as well, but it's also a portal to all the stuff that I do. So if you're going to go to one place for me, you might as well be my personal homepage, chriscoyer.net. And everything will be linked in the show notes, which you can find for this episode and every other one at giantrobots.fm. If you have questions or comments, email us at host at giantrobots.fm and you can find me on Twitter at cpytel. This podcast is brought to you by ThoughtBot and produced and edited by Tom Obarski. Thanks for listening and see you next time. This podcast was brought to you by ThoughtBot. We are experienced designers and developers who turn your idea into the right product. With local studios in Boston, San Francisco, New York, London, Austin, and Raleigh, let's build something great together.